0: Hello, this is an extra episode of our podcast this week and our series, Remember This, on 2 Peter. Uh, I'm Luke, I'm one of the leaders here at Kings, and I'm going to give you a bit of an explanation of what's going on in this chapter. Matthew preached really helpfully on it uh, just this last Sunday, uh, giving a real personal, practical, pastoral application. Uh, And my job is really to kind of cover all the complications of what is uh, going on in this passage. Um, If you haven't already uh, read it, I'd encourage you to do so and um, to uh, just to to be confronted by the the complexity of Peter's arguments and the unusual terms that he uses that we might find strange. Um, so I'm just going to go straight in to some background. Um, firstly, who, who wrote this letter and also what does it have to do with Jude? So 2 Peter has one of the most debated authorships in the New Testament, uh, including among many people who would assert that it is uh, God's word. The reasons it's debated is um, it's not often mentioned among the earliest post New Testament Christian writings which is where we tend to get our external evidence of the authorship of the New Testament uh, letters. Um, Internally it's a very different style to 1 Peter. Uh, It has an ancient Greek rhetorical structure uh, that a Jewish fisherman would have been unlikely to have learnt. But although smarter people than me will argue otherwise, I'm happy to give Peter the credit of authorship for a couple of reasons. Firstly, that's what it says. Uh, The first line of the letter says that it's him, and there are a lot of personal references throughout it. Secondly, I don't think it would have been included in the New Testament by the early church if it was known not to have been written by him. So if you want a weird uh, long word, pseudo pseudopigrapha is the word for you today. Pseudopigrapha, which is a Greek word. It's a combination of false, pseudo, and uh, uh, pigrapha, which is an inscription or a title. And it means someone writing something, pretending to be someone else. And you would do this to get attention. Uh, For example, a book by me would be of much less interest to Christian readers than one by Tim Keller. Uh, So I might say, oh, Tim Keller wrote this book, and then lots of people would be interested in it. I might also want to honour Tim Keller and say, oh, he's a great preacher and teacher, and this is the kind of thing I think he would have said about this scenario, about these people or this situation. So that might be why I would write something uh, that was pseudopigraphic, and lots of people did this around the time uh, just after the New Testament. However, there's just a falsehood in this which meant that the early church rejected anything that they believed was claiming to be written by someone other than who had written it. In one of the earliest New Testament letters, in fact, two Thessalonians, Paul mentions letters seeming to be from us, he says in chapter 2, verse 2, and he actually finishes the letter with his signature as proof that it's genuinely from him. So the idea that someone could have written this pretending to be Peter whilst attacking false teachers just doesn't sit right. In terms of that internal evidence, uh, how different in style it is from 1 Peter, uh, well, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.12 that uh, Silvanus helped him to write that. And so he may have had help with this one too from a different person. And, you know, he may have learned a few things in the decades of ministry uh, he had from being a fisherman um, until his death. And this letter in chapter 14 says he, it's written near the end of his life. So maybe he'd learned a few things about how to write letters in between time as well. Second issue, uh, background issue, is the issue of Jude. Um, If this chapter 2 Peter 2 sounded a lot like Ephesians 1 or Romans 8, we might all have noticed the connection because those passages are fairly well known. But Jude is a bit obscure, uh, which is also an English literature joke. Um, So if you read Jude verses 4 to 18 and then you look at 2 Peter 2, you'll see a lot of connections. There are about 13 parallel clauses. Um, There are also differences between them, Uh, so it's difficult which came out out first. I'm persuaded that Jude came first. Uh, Peter picked up on it, found it helpful, adjusted it slightly for his audience and his purposes. I I don't think that's a thing to worry about. Um, It's just an interesting detail, and the Bible is constantly in dialogue with itself. And Paul, for example, clearly wrote Colossians and Ephesians at a similar time with similar messages. Okay, so the background to 2 Peter 2 is obviously 2 Peter 1, and from verse 16, uh, Peter talks about his eyewitness testimony, his experience of Christ, and um, then goes on to say about how all scripture is ultimately written by the Holy Spirit through obedient people. And this raises the issue he wants to discuss, that as well as there being uh, true records and true prophets and true teachers, there are also false teachers. So we could summarize what he's saying as uh, what I'm saying to you is true because I saw it with my own eyes. What the prophets who wrote the Old Testament say is true because the Holy Spirit led them. But there have always been people teaching things that aren't true. And I want you to realize that. That's a summary of what he's saying in this chapter. And I think he probably has Deuteronomy 13 in mind here. Deuteronomy 13 says, "'If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you "'and gives you a sign or a wonder, "'and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass,' But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave, to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Um, this passage in Deuteronomy 13 isn't the only time when false teachers are mentioned in the Bible. It's a constant concern. In Mark 13:22, Jesus taught that false teachers would come. But I think there's an interesting Exodus connection uh, that's at work in both 2 Peter 2 and Deuteronomy 13 uh, that talk about God having redeemed or bought his people. Um, the word in, um, in, in verse 1 of 2 Peter 2, master, uh, talking about God, uh, in Greek it's despotes, which clearly is where we get despot from. Uh, and that word was used for slave owners as well as God because both had total authority. And this sense of um, belonging to God, uh, not just a casual association, uh, but actually him being our master. And that sense of a slave master, even, is a common New Testament metaphor. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20 uses it, for example. And uh, Paul uses it frequently in his own self-description, for example, Romans 1 verse 1. And how we think about our relationship to Jesus is vital to discipleship. If you think he's just a friend, then you really can take or leave what he says, seeing it only as advice. But if he's your master, that is a different thing, and that's why authority is such an important issue. If Jesus doesn't have that authority in your life, then you'll be free to do your own thing, and that's what people often like to do. Even again, back in the Old Testament, Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a common temptation and it always leads to disaster. It's massively counter-cultural in our day, uh, but as P.T. Forsyth wrote, "'The purpose in life is not to find your freedom, "'but to find your master.'" All of this probably, I imagine, felt very personal for Peter. He uses extremely strong language in this chapter. I think it's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was about denying Jesus. These guys were denying Jesus and, and Peter knows Jesus. He loves him, literally, Jesus is one of his best friends. And we hate to see lies spread about those that we know and love. But all the more, um, he talks about false teaching, damaging those who are persuaded by it, ruining the reputation of the church. And we see this every time a prominent church leader is revealed to have been sinning, don't we? And this enrages Peter. So what he does is he warns and encourages his readers by discussing God's judgment. And eschatology and ethics are linked. Eschatology is is the study of things that are gonna happen at the end uh, end of time, and ethics is about how we live. And and that's what's going on here, because these false teachers are denying that Jesus is returning. And if Jesus isn't coming back, then why does it matter how we live? Now, ironically, that denial of Jesus' return and coming judgment is what will lead those teachers to judgment. So what do we think about this? Well, when wicked people flourish, good people can wonder if anything is ever going to be done about it. Uh, The Psalms deal with this a lot. Peter is certain that those false teachers are going to be dealt with, and he gives three Old Testament proofs of it. And Ben Witherington summarises his teaching like this. God destroyed the world once, has kept angels for future punishment, and has levelled Sodom and Gomorrah. A wise person would conclude that God means it when he says that he will judge sin. So that's kind of the summary of uh, of Peter's argument. We'll have a look at uh, the the references that he makes. Most of us have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of us have heard of Noah. lot might be a little less known, and the stuff about angels might seem a little strange to us. Let's just start by not getting downhearted when the Bible makes references that we don't understand. So Peter is writing to majority Jewish churches um, for whom those references would have made perfect sense. They had a shared understanding a shared educational background which Peter could use to help them understand what was happening. The stories we tell ourselves, the history we grow up with, shapes how we see the world. And that's why governments um, shape their, their their national curriculums and what history is taught because they want the children growing up in their nations to think a certain way. Well, Peter's doing this very legitimately. Uh, His focus is on God who doesn't change, and he wants his readers to realize this. And so he refers back to previous examples of God's judgment of those who rebel against him in a similar way to how these false teachers are. But then he also adds some sense of God's mercy and hope for those of us who are wanting to stay faithful so verses four to six he says if god did not spare angels if he did not spare the ancient world if by turning the cities of sodom and gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction making them examples peter's saying this is god this is what god is like he is still like this now the whole issue of judgment is unpopular and makes us emotionally uh, confused often and that is fair enough it's a mighty thing to think about But I just want to say a helpful quote from a theologian called Feemy Perkins. I think she says something really helpful, a really good reminder. God did not establish commandments, send prophets and ransom humanity through the death of Jesus in order to maximise the population of hell. So let's keep that in mind. And Peter says something similar in uh, actually chapter three of this letter. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So that is God's heart for all people. But when people like these false teachers consistently and destructively rebel against him, God has to act. And that's what Peter's going to tell us about. So verse four, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Uh, your version probably has a couple of footnotes on the text here uh, for hell and for chains. The word translated hell here is Tartarus. It's found only here in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek myths of the underworld. It was a place where gods were imprisoned whilst awaiting judgment. And the Greek word for chains is really similar to the word for pits and um, Pits kind of fits better with this idea of Tartarus because that's what it was, um, and other New Testament imagery such as Revelation twenty verses one to three, when the devil and his accomplices are thrown into a bottomless pit. Um, it's a. Uh, it, it's a, it, this is a place. It's like a holding tank for the disobedient awaiting judgment, which doesn't, isn't the same as the everlasting nature of hell that's described elsewhere in the New Testament. So I think it must mean somewhere else. Um, when uh, I was discussing this, um, Dan helpfully uh, recalled the story of the, the demons uh, uh, legion, and they, they asked to be put into pigs rather than sent to the abyss. And I wonder if there's a parallel uh, going on there. Obviously you might be like, what is going on, angels? what's happening here. Um, there's a lot more I want to study about angels where I can really speak about them with as much conviction as I'd like. Um, but here's, what, here's, a simple, here's a simple overview. Angels mean messengers, um, but that ordinary sounding word tends to underplay the nature of what an angel is. They're heavenly creatures or spiritual beings. They're far more obviously glorious than we are, but they are not God's image bearers as we are, and they cannot receive the grace of salvation as we can. So Peter was almost certainly thinking uh, of some non-biblical uh, but Jewish teaching and legends um, that made reference to uh, There was a lot of teaching about angels and, and fallen angels. He is probably referring to uh, the disturbing story at the start of Genesis 6 when the sons of God, which is a reference in that context to angelic beings, have sex with human women, uh, the fruit of which are the giants called the Nephilim. And this story was uh, seen as like the archetypal rebellious sin. God acted against it immediately uh, by banishing those uh, particular angels. I think that's it's it's a separate reference uh, to um, you know Satan and, and demons of which uh, we see them clearly at work. Um, in the New Testament, all through uh, the Gospels. Jesus has encounters with Satan, encounters with demons. Uh, he says in Luke 10 verse 18 that he saw Satan fall like lightning. And that seems to have happened at that time when the 72 were out ministering the Gospel. Um, just a little bit more biblical background on, on fallen angels, I think probably different from the ones Peter's referring, uh, but Revelation 12 um, is very helpful on this. It's still apocalyptic language, so there's challenge, but Revelation 12 says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's often meant, that's a third of the stars of heaven. People say, oh, it was like a third of the angelic host rebelled against God. Um, So maybe that's what happened. There's then possibly a time gap. You never quite know in Revelation, but John goes on to say, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then in verse 12 of chapter 12 of Revelation, um, the, the pronouncement is made, the devil has come down to earth in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So whether or not Peter's speaking very specifically of, of Genesis 6 and those rebellious angels or the whole kind of uh, you know, demonic army that has rebelled against God, either way, he's saying that when creatures far mightier than us rebel against God, God defeats them and will punish them. And uh, some of those are currently being held, awaiting the final punishment that will come when Jesus returns on Judgment Day. How much more will this be the case for false teachers? So that's the angels bit. Um, spoke earlier about the connections with Jude's letter. And it's, it's here actually that um, the differences are really interesting. So Jude and Peter both mentioned fallen angels. They also both mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. But Peter adds the flood And and this is crucial for his argument. He includes Noah and his family in the flood story, and he adds the story of Lot in the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And he does this to reassure his readers that their faithfulness will be rewarded. Noah was preserved. Lot was rescued. And I think the other reason he mentions these stories together is that Jesus put them together in Luke 17, 26 to 29. Now, both men are described uh, by Peter and elsewhere in the Bible as righteous. Let's, Let's look at that. The righteousness of Noah is mentioned in Genesis 6. He's a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And the writer of the Hebrews says a similar thing in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was displaying, Noah was displaying his confidence that God would judge the earth, but also have mercy on mankind. The ark is both a symbol of judgment and mercy. Now, some translations call Noah here a preacher of righteousness, uh, although he's not described as actually saying anything in Genesis. But perhaps that's why the ESV goes for herald, a herald of righteousness, because his actions in building an ark were a message to the world that the world around him ignored. Uh, There is a Jewish tradition that Noah did actually preach, so maybe that's in Peter's thinking. And so Peter's saying, look, a faithful man obeyed God and a faithful family obeyed God and they were saved even in the midst of judgment. Now, you probably know the Noah story. What about the Lot story? Because if you know anything about him, it's probably that he offered his daughters to a violent crowd intent on raping the angelic visitors that he was hosting. Uh, You can find this story in Genesis 19. It's one of those Old Testament moments that make you feel deeply uncomfortable. Uh, And just again at the moment, uh, the spotlight has been shone again on the violence that so many women are facing so frequently. And we read stories like this, and uh, it's difficult to know what to make of it. The explanation that is often given, given is that Middle Eastern hospitality is so committed to its guest that Lot thinks the honorable thing to do is to sacrifice his daughters for them. Uh, But it still doesn't really sit right, does it? And and there's a scholar called George Athos who suggests something uh, that I think makes sense and that doesn't sound anywhere near as unrighteous as what Lot is typically thought to have done. And it's basically this, that Lot is lying. When Lot says to the, the mob at his door, I can just wait, I will get my daughters for you, my unmarried daughters. Well, he doesn't have any unmarried daughters he has daughters who are married and they're not in his house anyway. Because after Lot says in verse 8 that his daughters are unmarried in his house, in verse 12 the angel asks if he has any family members in the city who can be rescued with him. And in verse 14 they send him out to find them. Now most modern translations of verse 14 say that he went to his sons-in-law who were, who were to marry his daughters, but that obviously doesn't make sense. How can you be a son-in-law and not married to the person's daughter. And the Hebrew says that they were already married. And actually, older translations like the King James Version and the Geneva Translation uh, say that they were already married. So that's what's going on in that story. If you ever come across that in your Bible reading, you're like, what is going on? And then you read Peter saying, righteous lot," You're like, are you kidding? Well, I think that's, I think that's what's going on. I think it's a good explanation. Now, nevertheless, we've, we've tried to... Um, uh, recover Lot's reputation. Um, but Both Noah and Lot's stories end with unsavoury moments of drunkenness and that tells us something significant about righteousness and how exactly it's earned. It's, as much as how we live really matters, and 2 Peter's full of that, our righteousness comes from Christ. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has redeemed us, not our good deeds. Just a quick line on Sodom and Gomorrah as well. Um, They are strongly associated with uh, homosexuality. Uh, Jude picks up on that. Uh, But Peter is content simply to describe them as ungodly. And actually, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel says this about them. Ezekiel 16, 49. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So there is a sense of greed. In Sodom and Gomorrah that, the, that Peter also thinks the false teachers have as well as uh, sensuality and sexual immorality which he also accuses them of. Okay verse 9, Peter's point in all of this is that righteous people like his readers can live hopefully among rebellious people if they keep their trust in God. It will be tough as Lot in particular shows us but it is possible. And there's there's a kind of an allusion here, isn't there, to the Lord's Prayer? When Jesus says, Don't bring us uh, to the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus prayed also for his followers in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus won't leave us to our own devices. He is faithful to save those who are faithful to him. God knows how to rescue the righteous and punish the wicked. He will do both of those things because he is merciful and just. Okay, on to verse 10. Peter then has a lot more to say about the false teachers who are clearly among those who are rebellious and bringing judgment upon themselves. Um, It's very complicated Greek. Apparently, it's hard to translate, uh, but the most likely summary of what's going on uh, with the the blaspheming the glorious ones is that false teachers will slander or blaspheme anyone or anything, including even angels, uh, but the angels won't do that. As the saying goes, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Another line of argument which Jude 9 seems to make, and and must have been in Peter's head because he knew knew it, is that angels dare not challenge the authority of God's law. Uh, Hebrews 2 verse 2 uh, says a similar thing. And um, in the same way, this newly revealed law of Christ cannot be tampered with despite the claims of false teachers and also our own sinful desires. So let's just bring ourselves back into Peter's context. We've grappled a fair bit of Old Testament chat there, but let's remember the situation that Peter was in. Uh, suddenly, a radical new teaching had arrived that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, was in fact God himself. And he'd, he'd lived, he'd died, he'd been raised, he was now exalted. There was a new way of life to live that was about loving one another. There was a new international community of believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. There was a total turning away from the previous lifestyles that required, especially for those from non-Jewish backgrounds, but for Jewish believers as well. And this new way of life had been rapidly established by apostolic effort within a generation. And Peter was part of that, as were Paul and John and others and even as it was being built, there were threats that it was going to be undermined from false teachers. And that's what's going on. And I think, again, that's why Peter is so urgent in the language he uses. So if you look at verse 12, he calls them animals. And that seems rude to us, but the case is urgent. Sin is serious. And these life-threatening false teachers must be expelled. I know... I'm tempted to make my language too polite sometimes. And the danger is that we anesthetize people to the deadly damage that they are doing or experiencing. And Peter's not going to make that mistake. The language he uses here also has Old Testament background. He calls them blots and blemishes in verse 13. uh, He's referring to characteristics that would exclude an animal from being sacrificed in the temple and a man from being a priest. You can see that in Leviticus 1.13 and 21.21. So he's saying these people can't even come close to God. Also, um, in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, he encourages his readers to be diligent, to be found by Jesus without spot or blemish and at peace. And Ephesians 5:27, Paul describes Jesus as cleansing and sanctifying the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a real inside-outside thing going on here where Peter's saying, God has brought you in and those leaders are outside. You shouldn't listen to them. He goes back to this kind of language at the end of the chapter with Proverbs from the, uh, a proverb from the Old Testament, Proverbs 26, 11, about dogs eating their vomit and um, uh, an Arabic uh, proverb as well. Um, and neither pigs nor dogs were attractive animals to Jewish listeners. Both were unclean. Dogs tended to be scavengers rather than domesticated. And um, hence Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Actually, the word for mud or mire in verse 22 that the pig is rolling in is, is actually a slimy pit. And that sense of pits takes us all the way back to the angels in verse 4. Uh, clearly, uh, this means people who reject the gospel. Um, And Peter has one more bit of animal theme uh, when he talks about um, Balaam's donkey. So Balaam the prophet comes to Peter's mind in verse 15, maybe not to ours, uh, but you can read about him in Numbers 22 to 24, where he is paid by a king three times to curse God's people. But because God speaks to him, Balaam can't do it and he blesses them instead. Um, and it's on his journey to try cursing them the first time that he encounters an angel of the Lord. he doesn't realize it despite being a prophet and his donkey has to speak to him to tell him what's going on. And the whole thing is kind of strangely comic. There's this guy trying to do this wrong thing, hey he's paid to do it uh, and he wants to do it, but he can't because God's speaking to him. Um, he always seems kind of sympathetic here to an extent, um, but Jewish tradition paints a worse picture of him and actually immediately after this um episode in numbers 22 to 24 Israel then actually rather than receiving a curse from Balaam brings a curse on itself by getting involved with foreign gods and worshiping them uh, because it because they got involved with foreign women and we actually later learn uh, that this was Balaam's suggestion uh, numbers 3116 says that Verse 17, we have some more images from nature. We have the frustrating hopelessness of an empty spring or well. Imagine you're really thirsty, you really need something to drink, and there's nothing coming out of the tap. That's what false teachers are like, Peter says. And then this sense of a mist, uh, which John Calvin notes, that in the place of the momentary darkness which they now cast, there is prepared for them a much thicker and eternal one. Now, the question of whether or not these false teachers are genuine Christians or not, which is verse 18 onwards, to be honest, it's usually answered by commentators according to their view of salvation. Can it be lost or not? Peter warns that people, uh, sorry, Jesus warns that people who call him Lord, Lord, and do miracles in his name may not know him because they don't obey him. It's Matthew 7, 15 to 23. And there Jesus says that we'll know who's genuine by the fruit in their life. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about the gospel seed falling on different places and getting different responses, some of which look similar at first. And then he gives the parable of wheat and weeds, with the type of weeds he mentions bearing a particular resemblance to wheat, That's Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And Peter doesn't just know these teachings of Jesus. He lived it. He had denied Jesus. And he had not seen in Judas a... um, you know, an unfaithful, um, you know, false believer. He thought Judas was as much a part of the team as he was, and it actually turned out that both of them were in trouble. It's only at the last judgment uh, that who is truly a Christian and who is not will be definitively revealed. And actually, Peter says in chapter one of his letter, he talks to us about being all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election, So although we are saved by Jesus, uh, we are called to look at ourselves seriously, soberly, and make sure that we're living as followers of Jesus, not just people going our own way. And one of the things that church leadership should do is to um, discipline those who are members and who claim to be Christians, but who are acting in destructive ways for themselves or others. We're not aiming for a a pure church because... That will be an empty church, but we're aiming to protect those who might be brought down by the sin of others. Peter talks about this a number of times. He talks about unsteady souls uh, being enticed, uh, those who are barely escaping um, the, the way of the world, And he he hates that people are preying on those weak and vulnerable people. And church leadership is meant to protect that uh, through good teaching, uh, through challenging conversations, and even as, as a last resort by saying to people, no, you cannot be a part of our family because of how you are damaging other people here. Now, Peter talks a lot about destiny and prepared judgment in this letter, but he also tells his readers to take action. We shouldn't be complacent about our state before God, but neither should be constantly anxious. Uh, and so there's a sense here of warning, we're meant to be warned, but we're also meant to be encouraged. Just also to say, uh, in thinking about this discipline point and this care and growth, that's why we have preaching at Kings. That's why we have teaching. That's why we run Path of Disciples. That's why we have small groups, so that people can grow in maturity from that initial fragile state to something secure and fruitful. That's God's will for you, and that's Peter's will for you uh, through this letter. And so let's pray that that is what would be going on in our lives, that we would... Uh, be faithfully following God, that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free, uh, that we would be able to be uh, faithful. Uh, We thank you, God, that you know how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Help us, God, to be faithful to you. Amen.